0: Studios.
1: I find a a sense of fulfillment from that knowing that I've given somebody else some kind of catharsis, whether that is like yeah. laughing. Ah, see, this is where it's good that my brothers aren't here, because if they were here, uh any kind of like when I talk <laughs> about stuff like that, like if I say like the catharsis, I get they would rag on me so hard um <laughs> for being very pretentious, which I am.
2: For the record, Travis McElroy doesn't strike me as all that pretentious.
1: But, like, this, this idea of, like, if I can make somebody laugh or give them, you know, I don't know, something to think about or make them feel something, you know, make them feel re- some kind of emotional release so that they feel better. Like, I get that from, you know, watching movies or going to stand-up comedy shows and, mm. you know, that kind of thing. I like being able to offer that to somebody else, right? It makes me feel like I'm kind of passing it on and that I'm providing a service, I guess, in a way of like, I am doing something. I'm making people happier. I'm making them feel better. I'm, I'm helping them deal with something or helping them escape something for a minute or whatever it, it is. is. It, you know, it, just, it feels nice. It feels, you know, like I've accomplished something, I guess.
2: But what Travis and his brothers Justin and Griffin have to offer is more than just comedic release. From Alias Studios, this is Serving a Pod. I'm Nick Kwah. This week, how Travis McElroy and his brothers built their funny, nerdy universe. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. The McElroys give their listeners a lot of themselves.
1: Their silliness and hot takes, their brotherly bond, and a whole lot of nonsense. You know, the chicken soup for the boy teen soul could just be one page with one sentence and it just says, put it away. Just don't Do anymore. Do you
0: guys want to know a quick, very true thing? It's about the chicken soup for the soul brand large breed adult dog food. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Because food is more than just nutrition. It's also about comfort, love, and appreciation. Here's a fucking dog food with the Chicken Soup for the Soul brand on it. Chicken Soup for the Soul brand dog food. (laughs) You can't do that. You can't have two different (laughs) foodstuffs in the name of a product. It can't be like, what's up? This is Hamburger Helper's Kid Wine. What? (laughs) Yeah, it's wine for kids, but it's made by Hamburger Helper.
2: My brother, my brother and me, is hosted by Justin Griffin and Travis McElroy. The show started out in April 2010, and in the last 11 years, they've branched out far beyond your flagship show. So, okay, Travis, I have this theory that you and your brothers are actually among the most famous people in America. Really? Oh, it's I just based on what? Of, well, <laughs> let let me put it this way: so many people that I've met, you know, when I tell them I write about podcasts for a living, they'll bring you guys up. You know, it, it kind of feels like the McElroy's are like this semi underground but popular brand or something.
1: Uh, I have a lot of friends who are internet creators and people who have been doing it way longer than me. And being, as we like to say, internet famous can be very strange, <laughs> right? Because what you yeah. don't have is like uh, visual recognition that, that other people get sometimes from being on a TV show. Uh, yeah. Or movie or even like print ads or anything like that. And I, it also is still, uh, even though, you know, we've been going now over a decade, it's still a new kind of media. And so yeah. it is a weird thing to like tell people you do. It doesn't always register as being that. But one of my friends put it like, you're the mayor of a city. And if <laughs> if someone lives in that city, they know who yeah. you are. But as soon as you like step outside that city, you're like, I'm the mayor of my brother, my brother me. And people are like, I, I don't care. And you're like, Okay, great,
0: <laughs> great, 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 great.
1: Yeah, but let me like,
2: Cities can be big, and cities can be small, right? Like that's, I mean, and, and I I get the sense that like the McElroy community and, and just the community of of stuff that you have created, um, is is pretty far reaching at this point, like. You you've like bled into trolls too. Like it's it's like that is part a good of way sort of, of putting it. Yeah. That is an excellent
1: way of putting it. We were not cast into trolls too, we seeped into trolls too. That's a good way of right. putting it. I agree.
2: So then how do you view your fame?
1: It used to be when I was a kid, when I was like 15 or 16, you know, I would have said, like, when I grow up I want to be famous. And uh, I I have seen uh, you know people who are legitimately like a plus level famous and the kind of toll that that can take on your ability to just like exist in the world and do things and and I'm like you know what maybe I don't actually so much want that I'm pretty happy where I'm at right now where you know here in Cincinnati well not right now because the pandemic but uh, back in the before times, you know, maybe I'd yeah. be out at the store and someone would go, "Oh my gosh, it's Travis McQuarrie!" I'd be like, "Yeah, hi," and that would feel very nice. Uh, but you know, the rest of the time, I I was fine, just like going to a restaurant yeah. or hanging out with friends. And you know, uh, the the time when it feels really special is when we get to do like conventions or live shows and stuff, and you get this like spike of yeah. more than just feeling famous, feeling um uh like. Connected. Appreciate it, maybe? Well, yeah, that too. But I mean, we get that from people saying nice things about us all the time. But this feeling of being connected to the group Mm. where when we're doing a live show or able to do like a meet and greet or something and you're actually on stage and you're directly giving something to the audience in the performance and they're directly giving something back to you. And I think that that is something that, you know, is easy to kind of take for granted when you're working in a job where you get to like see your base all the time. Yeah. And because we're on the internet, we don't necessarily get to do that all the time. So when we get to actually, like, face-to-face interact with the audience, I think that is that is what people think of being famous as, which is, like, being yeah. connected and, like, standing there in front of a group of people who, <laughs> like, are connecting with you on that level of, like, this is important. I think yeah. that that is, is what people a lot of people really want when they talk about like being famous.
2: Travis, who's the middle brother by the way, lives with his wife Teresa and two kids in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he says that now, at 37, he's reached a type of fame he's always wanted.
1: I spent a lot of my life trying to figure out like what I wanted to be as a performer. I knew like from a very young age that I loved performing. I grew up doing community theater and children's theater. There was even a, a point at which I thought about, like, maybe I want to be a preacher. I just wanted the attention. Um, and then I went to college and got my degree in acting at the University of Oklahoma. Then I left there and uh, worked at Best Buy, which I don't think counts towards any of this for a while. Then I worked with the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company for many years as a technical director mm-hmm. and occasional actor. And then I moved to Los Angeles where I did some improv comedy. Classes and performed with that a couple times, and now I'm doing podcasting full time. And of those, the thing that I kind of realized by accidentally, more or less, backing into it was doing the podcasting stuff was what I really wanted to do in performing, which was just like be myself with an audience. Yeah. All the other things, it was like I'm working to create some kind of uh, you know, character or facade or premise or all of this. As, an, uh, you know, as a way to interact with the audience. And while I like all of that, and some of it can be really fun, yeah. I think I like this kind of much more like direct and sometimes much more scarily intimate connection with an audience where hmm. it's just you out there, you know, talking to them. And I, I really enjoy that.
2: That connection with the audience is in the DNA of My Brother, My Brother and Me. They call it an advice show for the modern era but it's really a way for them to read and answer ridiculous questions from listeners and from Yahoo Answers. I am a
0: cashier at a farmer's market in Michigan. We sell a huge variety of stuff, including fresh shrimp. Today, a toddler walked by our shrimp cooler and started... <laughs> <laughs> you have to read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. I <laughs> That's the problem with reading a few words ahead is that sometimes I can mess myself up while I'm trying to read it good. We s- <laughs> we sell a huge variety of stuff, including fresh shrimp. Today, a toddler walked by our shrimp cooler and started chanting "shrimp heaven now," <laughs> emphasis on the now. Eventually, leading his mother to say, "Please, <laughs> please, Daniel, we can't keep doing this." <laughs>
1: We're just not really trying to help. Like, we're trying to help in a much round, more roundabout way of yeah, yeah. slowly crafting, I don't know, making people feel nicer, I guess, make them feel better, but not directly at all. We're not trying—no, please don't. Please don't do the things that we say. We're not helping directly at all.
2: But the McElroys don't just make My Brother, My Brother and Me. They have a ton of shows, including Can I Pet Your Dog, Schmanners, which Travis hosts with his wife Teresa, and The Adventure Zone, which all three brothers co-host with their dad. And that's not even half the list. It was back in 2014 when Travis decided to take the plunge and become a full-time podcaster.
1: At that point, we were making Adventure Zone and my brother, my brother, and me. And I was like, okay, so what do, we, what do I do with my time? And it was like, oh, well, make more. And so I, you know, just started shows hoping that I, like... Instead of doing it the right way, which is to wait and develop a concept that was so perfect and so absolutely clicked that I couldn't not do it. I instead like had friends that I loved talking to and loved working with and said, well, you're so great. We should do a show together and then just kind of like made one, which is a perfectly fine way. To do a like fun show or your first show or, you know, a show for fun. But when you already have two like full shows going and you're trying to make like professional podcaster decisions, just like throwing it at the wall and starting full blown shows without thinking about if you, you know, could see yourself doing them for three or four years can really be a, a misstep waiting to happen.
2: So, like, that urge to just make and make and make, that's got to be mentally exhausting. Um, How do you deal with the burnout that comes from making so much stuff and having to use so much creative energy all the time?
1: The thing that I think me and Justin and Griffin all have kind of come around to now after a decade is, like, rather than start new projects whole cloth devoting more time to developing deeper connections to the project we're already doing. And so, like, Mm. that's why you see things like Adventure Zone and then we're doing the Adventure Zone graphic novels and the Adventure Zone board game and working on a pilot for the Adventure Zone animated series, you know, the script for that. Like, being able to say, like, we have this thing that we love so much. So rather than like try to create another project we love so much out of nowhere. Let's instead give this project the time and care that it deserves to develop it and grow it. And, you know, that kind of thing I think is helps uh, with the burnout. And more than that, it also is like we reached a point where we are working on enough projects that we can like justify hiring people to help us with them. And I think yeah. that there was a long time where that felt really bougie. <laughs> tell me,
2: tell me about that, because I, I feel like I I notice feeling because I feel the same way about like hiring new people to like support certain projects that I do. But like, tell me about that bougie feeling, because I, I kind of wrap my head around getting past that personally.
1: I don't know. There's something. I maybe it's imposter syndrome, right? Where you like you say like I yeah. employ people, and you expect people to be like you. And you're like, I know, uh, but the thing is, is like, it has allowed us to do more things, like work on the board game and develop a TV show, and like make things yeah. a priority, and given us the chance, like, you know, doing more live shows was a thing we were able to do because we worked with people, and yeah. I think that that was the thing that kind of tipped the scale for us as far as like making the decision to like be more serious about it and be more adult about it is that it allows us to output more creatively if we let people use their skills and expertise to like help us do it. You know, like Teresa hmm. and I would do Schwanners, and at this point we got two kids and doing Schwanners can sometimes be like a full-time research job for Teresa. You know, having someone help with research Let's us keep making the show and that was kind of the thing that eventually helped us get over that feeling of like are we you know just three kids stacked up inside a trench coat or are we really adults yeah. and let's really do this if we're gonna do it
2: coming up what it's like to make a podcast with your family So, Travis, one thing about My Brother and My Brother and Me that I really respond to is this really special, playful relationship that that you, Justin, and Griffin have. And, like, the, the heart of the show is basically the same as it was from day one. So I'm curious, where is that line between business partners and brothers? Like, how does it all mesh together?
1: Well, the truth is, and this is going to sound like a real, like, Hallmark nice answer, but it's <laughs> it's the truth very, very, very early on made the commitment to each other that we would stop doing it if it ever in any way threatened our, like, relationships with each other. And so I think that our business relationships are directly, like, impacted by the fact that we are brothers. So, like, we try really hard to communicate very openly with each other and that, doesn't just mean like, I don't think this is a good deal, but rather like on an emotional level as well. If you're like, you know what, I don't feel like my ideas are being heard about this project. And that is very frustrating to me. And it makes me not look forward to having these mean, like being able to like have that kind of discussion. But also the other side of it is the much more positive side of it is being able to very comfortably say to the other person like, I'm gonna be honest, I have no idea what I'm doing and like I really need your help on this or like I really trust you to handle this, you know, because I don't know how to do it. And mm. I'm not worried about a business partner thinking like, hmm, Travis is really dead weight on this project. Why Why is he gonna be a part of this? Because like we're all very good at recognizing everything that the others and ourselves are bringing to each thing that there's no need to like compete or worry, you know, if, if somebody, you know, is dragging their feet or something, being able to say like, hey, come do your job. <laughs> Another level of like, the reason I love working on projects and like doing live shows and stuff like that is, I get to hang out with my brothers. I get to see my dad. Our kids all get to play together. Like we travel with our whole family. Mm-hmm. There's like 14 of us that go and do live shows and the kids are all playing together, you know, backstage. And during the day before we do the show, We take all of our kids to an aquarium or, you know, to walk around the French Quarter in New Orleans or whatever. And Mm. that's like time I get to spend with my family or we get to, you know, make a TV show together and do that thing. And I'm sitting there nervous, you know, not knowing what I'm doing, but I'm with my brothers and I trust them. And it makes it Mm. a lot less scary where if I was there by myself, I just don't know that I'd be able to do it. All of that. I don't know that any kind of business thing could ever really get in the way of that because at the end of the day, the only reason I'm able to do this and the only reason I'm like confident in doing it as a career, the only reason I started doing it was because I was doing it with my brothers. There's no voice in my head saying, actually, Justin and Griffin don't think you're funny. Actually, Justin and Griffin hate working with you. Actually, if Justin and Griffin could, they would cut you out of the show. And I guarantee if I was working with just like two people, occasionally- those thoughts would creep up in my head and I'd second guess myself and I wouldn't be able to like do, you know, the show the right way. But because it's my brother's, I I don't worry about that. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they love me and trust me and like doing the show with me. The thing is, is like, I don't see not making my brother my brother and me ever. Like, it is a thing of like, I think we will keep doing it as long as people let us.
2: Well, that's beautiful. Um, So aside from doing the shows and the board games and a TV series and all that, um, you guys are also somehow had the time to write a book about making podcasts. It's called Everybody Has a Podcast Except You. Why write this book?
1: Well, so when I started kind of taking this seriously, I want to say back in like 2013 and thinking like, maybe this will be my job, I went looking for like some like reference i was like all right let's take this seriously how do you like grow a podcast how do you like make it good how do you do all this stuff how do you get good at podcasting and everything i found was all about like making money through kind of like cheating the system or inflating your numbers or marketing yeah, There's a lot of ebook self-publishing right. situations and that. it yeah. was not about like making a show that you liked making a good show It was about, like, here's some tips and tricks to, like, sell your show to advertisers, which, don't get me wrong, fine, it's great, (laughs) but, like, that didn't really help me in what I was looking for. So then Justin and Griffin and I kind of started talking about it, and then we each, at different times, like, have done some, like, either public speaking to, like, classes about, like, making podcasts, or, like, I taught... Uh, like six week course at a theater here in Cincinnati about it. And like we were kind of compiling notes as we went along. And then one day we were just like, okay, let's just do it. Let's just write it. Let's just sit down and write this book that is like, Hey, we've been doing this for 10 years. Here's all our mistakes. Here's everything we did wrong. So you don't have to do it wrong to learn and write it in our voice in a way that we think is not only like informative, but interesting and kind of funny and make it about making a show that you're proud of. And so then we kind of sat down and looked at it from that perspective, not about like how to be the next successful smash hit podcast, but rather like at the end of the day, here's a show that you will be happy to like show to people and to give to people and share with people. Hmm. And then, uh, I, I, it was completely inadvertent that it was going to be published during a pandemic in which people are less connected than they've ever been <laughs> and more distant from friends and family than they've ever been. Uh, but I hope hmm. that it is able to like help people reconnect. And you know, there's a lot in the book about recording remotely and getting individual setups done and all that stuff. And I don't know, maybe it will help people reconnect with, you know, family and friends and say like, hey, I haven't talked to you in a while. Let's do a podcast together. Um, Hmm. I hope so. That would be nice, wouldn't it?
2: So that's something that I believe in. Um, And I think that's like part of the central thesis and spirit of the book, that more people should be making podcasts. But I also feel like there's been this growing sentiment that maybe there's too many podcasts. And Maybe that sort of idea has some merit from a business standpoint, but you know, that's only if you're talking about podcasts as a business. What are your thoughts on that and what are your thoughts on the future of the business?
1: I think that when people talk about there being too many podcasts, I think that is because we are used to thinking about media in terms of like television and movies and even radio to a certain extent now where we think about them as having limited space for publishing, right? So if you're a TV network, for example, you only have so many hours in the day. Well, maybe it's a little different now with was streaming, right? Like everybody has That's true, right? That's coming. But e- yeah, yeah. But even then, right, then you can look at it from like, we need to bring in, uh, you know, viewers and everything. Here's my point, is that you have podcasts that are like big, right? And you have podcasts that are small, you have podcasts that are niche and you have podcasts that are you know, wide appealing and the one does not crowd out or infringe on the other. The only thing that people are competing for is the listener's time. And the thing is is if you are a niche podcast, right? I'll listen to it if I'm interested in that thing. And if you're a wide appealing podcast, I'll listen to it if it's good. And so it really is, you know, if you make a good show and you make it about a topic that's interesting to me, it's good, this is a good thing. And it's not like a movie theater where there's limited screens and you're paying the overhead of a movie theater. So we only sold 10 tickets for this movie, so now we're not gonna show it anymore. And it's not like TV shows where it's just like, hey, no one's watching this. There's like 20 people watching this, so it's canceled now. You know, this is like, okay, 20 people listen to this. It doesn't cost me anything to make it. I have a lot of fun making it. They have a lot of fun listening to it. So I'm just gonna keep making it and no one can cancel it. I think when people talk about that there's too many podcasts, I think that what they are really saying is, I don't want to have to compete with this thing, I don't want to have to compete with other shows. I want to make a mediocre show that people have to listen to because there's nothing else on. Um, and instead, I think that this is like, you know, there are plenty of shows I listen to where I know it's not for everybody. Where I know it's like, you know, this is a show that I love because it's a very obscure topic that I'm interested in. And that's fine. You know, I think that that's the most beautiful thing about podcasting is it gives you a chance to talk about something you love. And I guarantee there's at least one other person on this planet that will be excited someone's talking about it.
2: Travis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: Servant a Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash Servant of Pod. The show is produced by Andrea Swahe, James Trout, and John Prati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing themes at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Alias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Alias Studios.
0: The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people.
2: So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody.
0: It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old.
2: This is a historic thing coming.
0: And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal maker, wherever you get podcasts.